As GPs and allied mental health practitioners, we see a lot of people who are anxious about their health. Some of those people are so anxious about health-related issues, their anxiety interferes with their lives. Hello, I'm Jan Orman, and this is a podcast from the Black Dog Institute's arm of the eMental Health in Practice project. Recently, we invited some experts to come and talk to us in a live webinar about health anxiety. The on-demand recording of the live webinar is available to view on the Black Dog Institute website, but for the time poor, we've put together a summary of the webinar in this podcast. My panellists on the podcast were Sydney-based clinical psychologist and research director at the Clinical Research Unit for Anxiety and Depression, otherwise known as CRUFAD, Professor Jill Newby, Senior Clinical Psychologist at CRUFAD, Dr Alison Marnie, and Brisbane GP, Dr Shrishti Dutta. Our first task was to clarify just exactly what we were talking about. Because we all get anxious when we get sick, there's some confusion around the notion of health anxiety. Tell us, Jill, what is meant by excessive health anxiety? What's the disorder about? Right. Well, I think that's a really important point. You know, everyone gets anxious from time to time, especially when they get sick or when family or friends or loved ones get sick. And some anxiety can be normal and helpful and adaptive because when we feel anxious or worried about a new symptom or um, sensation, and go, we that might prompt us to go to the doctor to see what's wrong with us. But what we're not re- sort of referring to that type of health anxiety. When we refer to health anxiety as some, a problem that needs to be treated, it's when health anxieties really become excessive. So when a person's really preoccupied with fears of illness, either having an illness or, or getting one, when it's lasting too long, when it's sort of consuming their thoughts, when it's distressing and impairing, they can't get on with the normal activities that they used to do. So what's the prevalence of, of health anxiety, Jill? Well, the studies that have been done internationally range a lot in the types of definitions um, about what they use to define health anxiety. Uh, But the studies suggest it's somewhere between 2 and 13%. In Australia, we did a study of the National Health and Wellbeing Survey, and we found about 1 in 20 will experience excessive and disabling health anxiety at some point in their life. So that's over a million Australians. So it's a lot more common than what we thought, and somewhere near as common as other anxiety disorders like GAD or generalised anxiety disorder. Jill noted that health anxiety usually begins in early to mid-adulthood and runs an episodic course. She also noted that unlike some anxiety disorders, it tends to affect males and females equally. Working in a clinical setting, Alison sees the many ways in which health anxiety impacts on people's lives. There's a whole range of impacts, Jan, um, and it does vary somewhat from person to person. But as you mentioned, everyone with that diagnosis will have some level of impairment and disability. Um, And that can be on an emotional and cognitive level, people being worried by thoughts and intrusive images throughout the day. And that can lead to a lot of checking and reassurance seeking, which can have a strain on relationships with the person's loved ones, as well as their GP and their other caregivers. 
there's a fair amount of comorbidity. So people with health anxiety might also be struggling um, with depressed mood. And we see a greater increase in health service utilisation in this population. So there's an economic and societal impact from this disorder as well. So what puts people at risk of health anxiety? A history of child abuse or neglect um, is a general risk factor for a lot of conditions, including health anxiety. There's also specific risk factors. So if a person has been seriously ill when they're a child or their parent was sick or died during their childhood, they're more likely to experience health anxiety later in life. And there's some evidence of a genetic risk factor as well. Um, and yeah, and what we tend to find is that along with those other risk factors, there's specific events that might precipitate an episode of health anxiety. So that's usually a major life stress um, or a combination or accumulation of stress or a serious threat to one's health. So if someone's sick themselves or has had a health threat or someone around them or loved ones or um, they hear stories of other people getting very seriously ill or dying, that can sort of precipitate an episode of health anxiety. I've actually known several people who've reached the age that a parent died at and have had significant issues with health anxiety as a result of hitting that milestone. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. One of the reasons there's a lack of research around health anxiety is that between DSM-4 and DSM-5, the definitions were changed. What is now health anxiety was once referred to as hypochondriasis. Jill was involved in the recent revisions to the DSM-5's description of health anxiety, so I'll let her explain. Health anxiety is actually one of those disorders which has been transformed in the recent DSM-5. So in the DSM-4, we would diagnose health anxiety with a diagnosis of hypochondriasis. So in that disorder, a person would have needed to be seriously convinced they were ill or suffering some sort of serious illness for at least six months, even though their doctors and health professionals had ruled out serious illness. But that's been transformed to DSM-5. So now that diagnosis has been split into two. Um, the main diagnosis that we would say fits within the, the patients we tend to see in the clinic is illness anxiety disorder. Basically, DSM-5 has made a huge gains in more accurately reflecting the types of symptoms and concerns that people tend to experience with this condition. According to DSM-5, someone with health anxiety has a preoccupation with having or acquiring a serious illness, no somatic symptoms, a high level of anxiety about health and is easily alarmed about their personal health status. Either excessive health-related behaviours, including both help-seeking and wellness-related behaviours, or maladaptive avoidance behaviours, such as avoiding doctors at all costs, and anxiety about health that has persisted for at least six months, though interestingly not necessarily anxiety focused on the same condition for six months. Alison talked about differentiating between health anxiety and generalised anxiety disorder. She also mentioned the importance of excluding medical conditions before embarking on treatment for health anxiety and the possibility of health concerns being delusional, that is, manifestations of psychosis. 
there's an enormous diversity in the way that people present clinically. So this list is definitely not exhaustive, but these are the these are the big players, these are the big boys um, that typically I see in our clinic, which is a specialist anxiety clinic, um, particularly GAD, panic and, and depression. Um, and we really need to make sure that we're ruling out um, whether there's any sort of psychotic spectrum disorder when people present because the treatment or the management is a little bit different from the internalising Jill introduced us to Blake, a young man that she said was fairly typical of her patients with health anxiety. Blake was a 25-year-old that lived with his parents and he was a teacher and he actually presented um, to me for help with work stress. So he'd had some serious problems at work, including bullying and just the general stress of being a teacher. Um, And so he wanted help with that. He was also starting to have panic attacks as well, so very worried about that. He um, was quite typical of some of the patients that we tend to see in the anxiety clinic. So he had started to worry about his heart after a couple of people in his life had died suddenly. So one of them had died from a brain tumour. Um, they'd only been recently diagnosed and it progressed very quickly. And then another person died suddenly of a heart attack. So after that, he started to worry his heart was weak and that would cause a heart attack and sudden death, even though his heart was actually completely fine. He'd done all the tests and investigations with his doctors and he was fine. Um, But he also worried about dizziness and pain. So he was worried that dizziness was a sign that he might have a brain tumour and the pain that he felt in his neck as a sign of cancer. Um, And so Blake also feared because he was getting so anxious and stressed and panicky and having his panic attacks that that would cause his parents to get so worried that they'd have a stroke. This led to a discussion about the tools that might be useful in making a firm diagnosis in someone like Blake. These tools included the short health anxiety inventory, the Whiteley 14 scale and the illness attitude scale. The three questions that form the bodily preoccupation subscale of the illness attitude scale have recently been shown to be a useful screener for health anxiety, reliably discriminating between those with severe health anxiety and the rest of the population. The questions on that subscale are, when you read or hear about an illness, do you get the symptoms of that illness? When you notice a sensation in your body, do you find it difficult to think about anything else? And when you feel a sensation in your body, do you worry about it? Someone suggested that this was a perfect description of what we used to call medical student syndrome. But fortunately for most medical students who don't also have health anxiety, the symptoms are only transient. There's not a lot of evidence to support the use of medications in health anxiety except to treat comorbid depression. CBT is probably the most robustly supported treatment um, and of, of those, um, some people will have an antidepressant at the same time and there's some limited evidence that the combination of medication and CBT can be helpful for individuals. I asked Jill whether CBT for health anxiety was best delivered individually, in groups or online. I don't think there's been any direct comparisons. That would be from the meta-analyses. But either format, individual, group or the internet can work really well. So what does CBT for health anxiety actually consist of? Treatment will start with some education and some information around the role of thinking and thinking processes, including attentional biases. Um, The bulk of treatment 
that we do here at, at the Anxiety Clinic at St Vincent's is quite behavioural. So getting people to gradually confront their feared situations and sensations and learning to build confidence in tolerating doubt and distress. I was just wondering whether the exposure that you're referring to here is um, in a similar construct to, say, the you know, intrusive ego dystonic thoughts of um, OCD. Are they similar in terms of what's done? Absolutely. So in OCD, when we're looking at exposure and response prevention, it's very similar um, to the exposure paradigm that we use with illness anxiety disorder. The person triggers off their anxiety or their doubt through the exposure, and then the response prevention may be inhibiting excessive checking, reassurance seeking. So that ERP um, paradigm that you mentioned is exactly the same sort of thing that we use in illness anxiety. Alison introduced us to Julie, a young mother whose severe health anxiety was impacting on her decision to have a second child. Julie's concern was that she was not physically strong enough to have another pregnancy. She'd had a miscarriage before her pregnancy with her daughter, but her anxiety hadn't begun until a year or so after her three-year-old daughter was born. Julie says she's always been a perfectionist and a worrier and that she comes from a family of people who experience anxiety and sometimes depression. Julie's childhood was marked by the severe asthma experienced by her younger sister from an early age. Julie's story illustrates the complex mix of factors that contribute to the development of health anxiety, including a vulnerable temperament, childhood adversity, personal medical events and exposure to serious illness in others, as well as a family history of modelling of anxiety-driven behaviour. I asked Alison to walk us through the way the CBT model explains health anxiety. The first part of treatment is getting people, getting patients to have a really good understanding of how this model works for them. Um, So if we look at um, Julie's experiences, often this cycle will be triggered off by internal or external triggers. So internal triggers might be those physical sensations like she gets a tummy ache. External triggers might be hearing about her sister's asthma flare-up or hearing an ambulance go by that would trigger off a whole range of um, scary thoughts for her, like what if I have cancer, what if something bad's happening. Um, That would trigger off the flight or fight response, which would trigger off more physical symptoms, so there's a feedback loop between the thoughts and the sensations. And to cope with that distress, Julie would rely on a number of maladaptive coping behaviours, such as seeking reassurance, lying down, checking, doctor Googling, and that would reinforce that her fears were valid um, and just fuel that cycle going around and around and around. The increased attention to the physical symptoms as a result of all that Googling would increase her perception of the physical sensations and so it goes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And one of the things that we see very clearly in illness anxiety disorder um, are some very strong attentional biases. So someone with health anxiety will be very finely attuned to their internal experiences and they may actually be tuned out to the external world. Mm-hmm. Coupled with that attentional bias are often a number of underlying beliefs about illness and about health, such as, you know, even the slightest symptom can be the sign that something bad is happening or doctors miss things all the time or you can't trust doctors and those underlying beliefs really set people up um, to to pay a lot of attention to their bodily noises Um, and the problem with that is where you know if you seek you'll find you know if you're spending a lot of time looking for different symptoms 
you can magnify your experience. So what we would start with, as I, as I said, is we'd start with explaining this model and we'd walk her through what needs to change to stop this cycle. So we'd be looking at trying to gradually shift those unhelpful thoughts and increase some flexibility. Maybe it's not cancer. Maybe you can cope with the uncertainty. We'd also be looking at changing those maladaptive behaviours gently, gradually, sensibly, with no surprises. We don't force anything on anybody, um, but we gradually be getting her to change um, to reduce the excessive checking and reassurance seeking, the excessive preoccupation. What we're not so interested in stopping is those physical sensations because they're just her body's normal sensations. What we're going to be aiming for for her is to help her tolerate and accept and soothe those symptoms rather than trying to get rid of them or catastrophize them. I was just wondering in that the, as far as physical sensations are concerned, we know pain is one that you know patients will often present with that rather than tolerate it. Um, and chronic pain are there any associations that we see with regards to health anxiety and chronic pain syndromes? Because there's a quite a few of those. And often these patients will have a lot of contacts with health professionals anyway. Mm. Um, there's a very good construct that we're not trying to cure the pain there, but similar to this model, trying to help them manage and increase flexibility as well. So is there an association there as well? Yeah, there is. So in chronic pain, I mean, this is the issue with a lot of medical literatures is the, the terms we use to describe quite a similar thing are different across literatures. So in the chronic pain, you're right, we look at how do we help that person reclaim their life from the impact of the pain? So often we can't change the pain, we can't take it away and we can't necessarily make it less severe, um, but we can help them improve the way they cope with their pain. And so in chronic pain, we get things like fear of movement, um, fears that certain symptoms of pain might be a sign of something seriously yeah. um, seriously wrong. Mm. So even when they're experiencing pain, even when they've been reassured that the pain is not a sign of cancer or something else, we can still get our patients worrying about those conditions. And so we would use this CBT model in conjunction with other multidisciplinary health professionals to try and address that. Jill and Alison have both had quite a lot to do with the This Way Up online treatment program for health anxiety. What we do in our clinic often is work face-to-face -face with people and have the online at the same time. Alison illustrated many of her PowerPoint slides with screenshots from the This Way Up program. If you're a health practitioner, you might like to take a look at this program. It's a great example of the way face-to-face -face CBT can be translated to the online environment. And it's also a great way to learn about CBT techniques that are used in treating health anxiety. You can register on the This Way Up website to become a referring practitioner. If you'd like to look at the content of the program before you recommend it, you can contact the clinic, the contact details are on the website, and you'll be given full temporary access to the program. Along with talking about details of therapy, we also talked about some of the things that can act to prevent CBT from working. We often are focused entirely on the consult and what we are trying to achieve, but I can certainly think of a patient who, with those short CBT sessions, was doing fine. But unfortunately, there is a family member reinforcing mm, yeah. externally those um, worrying thoughts. Yeah. And part of that needs to be tackling or changing their 
their dynamics with their relationship with that person and putting up some more firm boundaries as well. So that would probably be when you don't expect to, when you don't see the change you expect is when you'd go exploring some more and see, well, what else is happening here that I'm not seeing? There's a whole gang of people working against you. Against you, yes, absolutely. And I think related to that, it can be really helpful to get family members or loved ones who might be part of that interaction to either work through the online resources or to attend the face-to-face sessions. So then they're learning exactly the same thing. They're learning about the CBT model. They're learning the types of thoughts or behaviours that might be perpetuating this cycle. And then they can get on board with that too. We've had a few questions around what if people have a diagnosis of a serious illness? So, for example, they've got motor neuron disease or they've had cancer or um, another condition. Do we still diagnose health anxiety in that case and how do we manage it? And so the short answer is we look at whether in the context of that illness, is that person excessively anxious about their health? Is that anxiety about their health all-consuming and impacting their day-to-day life? And if so, then it's worth using these techniques to help them. And so when we, when we tailor the tools and the skills, we look at how we can manage that anxiety within the context of that diagnosis, but also how we can help them reclaim their lives from the anxiety. So we're not changing necessarily their physical symptoms or their diagnosis, but we're changing how, we, how they react to them and how they cope with them. Mm-hmm. So if they're Googling too much about their symptoms um, or if they're checking way too much beyond what the doctors would say, then we try and cut those those coping strategies back to help use sort of more positive and adaptive coping strategies. I hope that discussion has gone a little way to improving your understanding of health anxiety and perhaps even piqued your curiosity enough to want to know more. If so, watch the on-demand webinar and check out the content of the This Way Up online treatment program. It's a great way to learn. See you next time.